So last week, we, we looked at the beginning of Paul's letter to the Galatians. And really the point that I tried to make last week is this, this is serious. What's going on here in Galatians um, is a big deal. And one of the reasons that you can tell that right off the bat is this is the only letter that Paul writes where he doesn't have a thanksgiving at the beginning. Every other letter that Paul has written starts with a thanksgiving. I'm thankful to God for blah, 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 blah. And he always, in that thanksgiving, commends something about the people he's writing to. He has something nice to say about them. Even the Corinthians, who are doing the craziest stuff, having orgies at the Lord's Supper and all this kind of stuff, um, he commends them. But the Galatians, no thanksgiving, no commending. This is a serious situation. And we began to explore a little bit what's so serious. Here, we really begin to unpack that and discover a little more what has happened. So let me read the first few verses from chapter 1 of Galatians, and then we will get into it. Anybody still need an outline? I see Wendy hand those out. Looks like we're covered. Awesome. I'll read verse 1. In verse 1, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into a confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, even reading these words, we we pick up without much trouble that Paul is upset. He's astonished. He's concerned. He's mad, even. We pray, Lord, that we would begin to understand what is it that's got him so stirred up. And may it stir us. For your glory, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I told you, here, here's what's going on. Um, in, in essence, what I just read, he's basically saying this. Um, things are serious. Evidently, some people have come. You remember, Paul himself preached the gospel to the Galatians, to these people in this area called Galatia. He didn't actually do it intentionally. He was actually passing through there. But as we'll find later in the letter, he gives a little autobiographical details a little later. He was going through that area, ends up becoming sick and at some point has to stop in this area and while he's laid up there he preaches the gospel and it takes hold in these people and these churches are born and Paul has you know very personal relationship with them he checks in on them from time to time but now he's heard that some other teachers have come along after he's laid this groundwork and planted this church other people have come along and evidently they are really screwing things up 
He describes it here as um, throwing the, the people into confusion in verse 7 and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So you want to know, what is Galatians about? It's a letter occasioned by this situation that these people that Paul loved have now been thrown into confusion by some false teachers who are trying to pervert the gospel. Now that's a strong word, pervert. But actually in the Greek, it's interesting, the, the word is more literally to be translated reverse. And actually that helps give us a little clue. What is it? What is the perversion of the gospel that they've done that is so serious? So serious that Paul says this gospel, this other gospel, is really no gospel at all. You remember, gospel means literally good news. So what he's saying is, the good news that you accepted, now some new people have come along, they've thrown you into confusion, they've perverted the good news, and so this new good news that they're telling you is good news is really not good news at all. In other words, you've reversed the gospel, he says. And by reversing the gospel, it's become no gospel at all. Now, now what do we learn from this? We learn first and foremost, that the gospel has a certain order. And if you don't keep it in the right order, it's actually not the gospel at all. So what do we learn about the order? Well, there's actually, in verse 6, two important clues as to what is the gospel and the order of the gospel that Paul considers so vital. And you see it here when he says, you've deserted the one who called you, or are deserting, this is important, they are deserting, they're in the process of, but they have not, they've not lost their faith completely, but they really have lost the goodness of the gospel. So he says, you've deserted the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, this phrase, called you by the grace of God, Christ, is a very important phrase. What it basically means is this, everything began with God. We saw that last week as well, because we talked about how a couple verses right before this, he talks about how the gospel is, you've been rescued. The gospel always begins with God. If you don't hear anything else that I say tonight, remember that. Remember that the Bible teaches that. The gospel begins with God, and it begins with grace. What Paul is saying is, here is the gospel order. Grace first. Grace first right at the beginning, called by grace. That means God initiated this relationship. The way you get into a relationship with God is he initiates, he calls, and he calls you by grace. Now that word grace sometimes is translated as favor, but it basically means this. From the very beginning of your relationship with God, Paul is saying, you are accepted. You are shown God's favor. He is pleased with you. It's a very, you know, it seems like a kind of phrase that we would just pass over, called by grace, but it's a very important phrase. It means it began with God, and you began, you commenced your relationship with God. If you're a Christian, you, it commenced with favor, with you already being in God's favor. Now, that's actually a pretty radical idea. Most people in the world believe that the way you commence a relationship with God is you call upon Him, And then you try your best to do the kinds of things that will make him pleased with you. 
And I'm not just talking about most people that are Christians. I'm talking about most people in the world, no matter what religion they hold. If they hold to a God at all, generally the way they think that you get in a relationship is you call upon this God and then you try to do things that please this God, to grow and to nurture this relationship. But Paul says, actually, that's not the order. That's not the order. The order is you don't commence by calling upon God and then trying to do the right things. You actually begin the Christian life in God's favor. The Christian life begins with a marriage, not with dating. And that's a huge thing. Because you know, no matter how serious your dating relationship is, it's very different than starting with marriage. The Christian life does not begin with an audition. It's good news. Because none of you would pass, and neither would I. And there are no auditions along the way either. Because grace covers you from beginning to end. That's what Paul says. So what what does it mean to reverse it? Well, it means literally to not begin with grace. It means to begin with something else, and then grace comes second. Now, that seems like a minor little deal, but it's such a serious difference that it makes what you believe, if you believe that you start with something besides grace, it means that you don't believe the gospel at all. Wow, (laughs) that's strong, isn't it? The order is God calls you and accepts you, and that is how things commence. It begins with a marriage. It begins with you being fully accepted into the beloved. Now, I'm not saying that the first time you might be interested in God and finding out about what Christianity is, and some of you may be, I hope some of you are even in that place where you're kind of wondering, what is this Christianity thing? I'm not saying that you begin to be interested in God um, and you're already fully in. But from God's perspective, there is a moment when you pass from death to life, when he creates new life in you. It's what he said here. He gave himself to rescue us from the present evil age. Over in Ephesians 2, I mentioned this last week, Paul says that God made us alive while we were still in our sins, that that's what grace is. In 1 Peter, which we're doing in some of our small groups, it starts that way, that he has given us new birth into a living hope and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. You get the whole inheritance from the very first moment that you're a Christian. Not because of anything you did. It begins with grace and you get the whole ball of wax, right? If you reverse that or if you add a little step before grace, you actually completely destroy the gospel. To reverse the gospel is to destroy the gospel. Now, how do you, what does it mean to reverse it? It means basically to do this. And there's some overt versions of this, but there are also very subtle versions of this. But it means to place something before grace, something that you feel qualifies you, or something you feel you need to do to be qualified to receive grace. A lot of Christians um, will say that they believe in grace, but when you closely question them, you find that they think that there's something about them that qualified them to receive grace. What Paul's saying is, if that's what you think, it's not the gospel. He's so bold as to say, that's not even a gospel. Why? Because if there's something you need to do, some character quality you need to possess or develop, something you need to quit doing, if there's something you need before grace, then what the gospel has become for you is advice. Get this thing. Do this thing. Stop doing this thing. It's no longer good news. It's transformed now into advice. 
And advice has no power whatsoever. And Christianity does not begin with advice. It begins with news. God has rescued us. Rescued us. He's called us by grace. He's married himself to us. Now, the implications of that should lead you to live a holy life. But Christianity is not do your best to live a holy life and God will look down and say, oh, wow, boy, that'd be great to have this, this guy on my team. I think, I think I'll extend grace to him. God doesn't even look in the future and say that you're going to be such a wonderful Christian that he's going to give you his grace based on what he's going to see that you're going to become. No, it begins with God calling you by grace. Grace is his favor that you don't deserve. You don't deserve it because of what you're going to become. You don't deserve it because of what you've done. You don't deserve it because of what you've not done. Right? Is that clear? Paul thinks that this is so important, it's worth screaming about. If I scream, I won't have a voice left. So I'm not going to. But here's, you know, um, Gresham Machen, who is a great, great um, theologian, pastor, actually founded a seminary in Philadelphia, Westminster Theological Seminary, put it this way in a little book he wrote about Galatians, which I think is helpful, just another attempt to try and get you to understand what the point is here. He says, the central point at issue between Paul and these false teachers that scholars call these the Judaizers, and, and as we get into the book of Galatians, you'll realize why that is. But the, the central point at issue was basically the order of three steps. They had a difference of opinion, Paul and these false teachers, about the order of three steps. Here it is. Paul said, one, first step, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, at that moment you are saved. Third, immediately you proceed to keep the law of God. So believe, you're saved. You keep the law. That's the order, Paul says. The Judaizers have come in and said, no, the order is not that. The order is this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and keep the law of God as best you can, and then you'll be saved. That's a subtle difference, but it makes makes the gospel not a gospel at all. But it makes it something that you need to do that you can't possibly do. And so, of course, what happens is Christians that that believe this, and you've got to remember, Paul is writing to Christians. While he says some very strong things to them about you're in danger of losing the gospel, you're buying into a gospel that's no gospel at all, he doesn't go so far as to say that these people are not Christians. He thinks that there's still time to bring them back. It's why he writes them this letter. They're flirting with dangerous ideas, but ideas always have consequences. And I will tell you, one of the consequences that's already beginning to work itself out in the, in the churches of Galatia is they have no joy. Paul talks about later, he says, what happened to all your joy? If God just tells you what to do, your life will never have joy. But the more you begin to understand what God has done, that's where joy comes from. So these people, by substituting this gospel for this new gospel that's not really a gospel, they've lost their joy. Not only that, but he says later in this letter, they've started to bite and devour one another. They're miserable in their relationship with God, and it's spilling over into every other relationship that they have. And it always works that way. It always works that way. Your relationships with other people are always connected to your relationship with God. Now, another way to say this is, a little more theological lingo way, but I think it's helpful. There's, there's two things that are important for you to understand, and hopefully if you stick around RUF, I hope that you will understand justification and sanctification. 
Justification is basically, how am I right with God? And what justification is, is that those who are Christians have been justified. That means that God sent Jesus to take the punishment that their sins deserved, so they no longer owe God a debt for their sin. But not only that, Jesus came and he lived the perfect life, loving God from his whole heart, for his whole life, and Christians get credit for that perfect life. Maybe the best way to explain it is, I think a lot of people don't understand the justification. They think of it, they only understand half of it. They think that when they become a Christian, that God wipes clean the slate. You ever heard this illustration? You know, that you have a book and God has written down in your book everything that you've ever said, everything you've thought. Generally, they tell this to junior high kids at retreats to freak them out, right? Anything, you know, there's a tape recorder in your head or now a video camera in your head and, and God's recording everything and he's writing it down in this book. And when you become a Christian, you open up the book and voila, it's blank. There's nothing in there. But in reality, what Christianity teaches is not that. Christianity teaches that Jesus also has a book. And in that book, God has written down everything he thought and said and did. And when you become a Christian, what Christianity says is the covers on those books are switched. And when your book is opened, it's not blank. Your book is filled with all the things that Jesus did. In other words... It's not enough for you to be forgiven, to be saved. You also need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And God has never backed down on that. The only way you can deal with that is if you understand that what you get in the gospel is not just forgiveness, but you actually get credit for all the right things that Jesus did. That's justification. Sanctification is growing more Christ-like. But here's the important thing. If you mix up the order of those two two things, it's disastrous for your relationship with God. If you think that what God thinks about you is based on how well you're living the Christian life and how well you're doing in the pursuit of sanctification, you you will be miserable unless you're completely deluded. The only way you can survive is to be completely deluded. You can be deluded about what God requires. You can think, well, you know, God knows that I'm weak and he knows that I'm human. And he doesn't really, he doesn't really expect me to do all these, all these things that he says in the Bible. But you don't really believe that. And so you feel guilty all the time. You try and convince yourself that he doesn't want you to do these things. But you know that he does. And if you don't understand justification, that what God thinks about you is based upon what Jesus did and what Jesus suffered, then you can never actually begin to love God. All the Christian things that you're doing are really manipulating God, trying to get God's favor. So it's really vital that you don't mix up justification and sanctification. Justification is how you begin the Christian life. You've been called by the grace of God. You've been given this inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept in heaven, 1 Peter chapter 1 says, kept in heaven for you where you can never get at it to screw it up. What God thinks about you is is based upon what Jesus did. And we know what he thought about what Jesus did because God said from the heavens, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And if you're a Christian, he says that about you, not because you deserve it, but because Jesus deserved it. 
That's justification. And that has always got to be what orients you. When you think about what does God think about me, you have to remember to think about justification. And justification is not based upon the level of your sanctification. But that's what Christians get mixed up all the time. And it's really what the book of Galatians is about. It really comes down to this. Does God love and accept us and then we try to live a life that pleases him? Or do we do our darndest to live a life that pleases him, hoping, hoping that at the end of our life we've done enough things to outweigh the bad things so that he'll accept us into his, heaven, into his kingdom? Does that make sense? Now, now this... When you get this wrong, it always brings trouble. It brings trouble to you and it brings trouble to the church. Now, we all know about legalistic, authoritarian churches, and I suspect some of you have grown up in those kind of churches or at least spent some time in those sorts of churches. I'm talking about the churches that say it's not enough to believe on Jesus. You also have to jump through these hoops if you want to be a Christian. And then there's a, subtle, a more subtle version of that, which says, well, all you need to become a Christian is to believe on Jesus. But if you really want to please God, you have to do all these things. And the, the whole list of all these things. That, that's not actually true. The way you please God, well, it's actually a fascinating place where some disciples came to Jesus and asked him. This is in John chapter 6. They came and asked him, said, Jesus, what are the works that we need to do? What are the works that the Father requires? Do you know Jesus' answer? Did he give him a list? That would be a good list to know, wouldn't it? No, he says, the work of God is to believe on the one he has sent. There's not a list of things you need to do to get God to be pleased with you. Trust in Jesus because God is pleased in him. And if you're in him, if you're connected to him, then he's pleased with you, not because of what you did. Now, that's hard to believe. And people, people give up on that all the time. Um, in a lot of evangelical churches, that, that pure doctrine that Paul's talking about here gets subtly attacked. And here's one of the most common ways. Again, I, I mentioned this earlier, but I want, I want to say this again. We, we fall into thinking that there's something that qualifies us to receive God's blessing. There's something that we need to do to qualify for God's grace. The message, you know, or or, or sometimes it's this way, that your faith, you need to have a certain amount of faith or your faith needs to be strong and you need to not doubt or waver and then God will save you. But, but you know, people mean well when they say that thing, but what they end up doing is saying that what saves you is the strength of your faith rather than the instrument of your faith. And I don't know about you, but I remember that when I heard, you know, first heard what it meant to have a personal relationship with Jesus, I grew up in a church where that wasn't the, the kind of language that we used. It was really ninth grade when I first heard that language. And I remember, you know, basically trying to pray Jesus into my heart and wondering, agonizing over whether I was truly sincere. Do you ever wonder that? How do you know, how do you know you really meant it? And then a year later, you think, well, I don't think I really meant it. But I really mean it now, Jesus. And, and, and again and again and again, over and over and over again. I got news for you. You don't mean it enough. You will never be sincere enough to earn the love of God. The love of God is not earned by your sincerity. The love of God is given to you as a free grace gift. 
Yet, we think it makes sense to us that we have to be good people, that we have to try hard, that we have to want Jesus in our heart or ask him in our heart. All these kinds of things, we try to nuance this, and we end up really attacking and undermining the freedom of the gospel of grace. It commences with grace. If you put anything before it, it's not the gospel anymore. Now, there's some liberal churches, more liberal churches, not all, but some, that end up distorting this purity of the gospel in a different way. They end up saying, it doesn't really matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you believe about the gospel. It doesn't really matter what you believe. What matters is that you're a good person. Which, of course, that doesn't really work either. Because now what you're saying is, salvation is based upon you being a reasonably good person. Or at least better than some other people. Or at least better than you were yesterday. Whatever the version of it is, it doesn't work. If there's anything prior to grace, it's not the gospel. Now, if you have this little paper, turn, uh, turn it over. I want to make one more point tonight, broad point with a couple subpoints, but it's this. This is personal. To reverse the gospel is not just, okay, you've fallen into theological error. It's personal because to reverse the gospel, Paul says, is to desert the one who called you in grace. I think sometimes we think about the gospel as this abstract legal transaction that we have with God, where we do something and we get something, or we pray and we get something. But the gospel is always personal, because God is personal. And what we do with the gospel, we do to God. In other words, Paul says that the reversing of the gospel is equivalent to deserting the one who called you. If you have reversed the gospel, not only have you lost the gospel, but you have, you've done something dishonoring to God himself. To reverse the gospel is to rupture our relationship. The word here that's translated desert in verse 6 is a word that refers to committing treason against an allegiance that you should have. And what that means is, when you're called by grace into a relationship with God, you're not just saved from hell. You are given a new allegiance. You're brought into a relationship with a king who deserves our honor. Right? It's a personal allegiance that we have. And whenever we sin or whenever we even distort the gospel, we end up distorting God. You can't distort the gospel without distorting God. If you think that you need to do something to qualify for grace, then what you're really saying is, God, I don't think you're really gracious. So it really matters what we do with the gospel. If we reverse the gospel, we actually are distorting God. And the the quickest way to fall into complete despair and to give up on Christianity is to have a distorted view of God. That's why it matters what you think about the gospel. That's why theology matters. Because to have bad theology is to have a, a misshapen idea of who God is and what he's like. The calling of God, though, you see, brings us into a new allegiance that we have to honor. And this actually is a theme that goes way back in the Bible, way back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters the world. The way it's described there is that Adam and Eve have allied themselves with Satan against God. And when God comes and speaks to them, one of the things that he says, one of the promises of grace that he makes to them 
is he says to the woman, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the serpent. In other words, God is saying, you've tried to ally yourself with Satan against me. I am not going to let that stand. I'm going to break that alliance and I am going to switch the teams. I'm going to put you on my side. I'm going to bring you into my kingdom. See, it's that same kind of language. Kingdom, allegiance, honor. It's all the same kind of thing. You're on God's team. You're not just saved from hell. You're brought into his, 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 his kingdom, brought into his allegiance. And whenever we sin, we're, we're refusing to accept this allegiance, right? And it's personal. We must honor the king by believing his gospel. We don't have the freedom to change it. Paul goes so far here as to say, angels don't have the right to change it. Even I don't have the right to change it. It's not my gospel. I didn't make it up. I proclaimed it to you. And yet if I proclaim something else, the gospel trumps what I would say to you later. The gospel is this, right? So we don't, we don't have the freedom to change it or to adapt it. Now, a couple, a couple more points about this. One of the important things for Christians is to honor God by honoring his truth. You don't do anybody any good. I don't do anybody any good by pretending, by pretending that everybody believes exactly the same thing and that everybody has the same understanding of the gospel. See, it's hard to preach through Galatians and not deal with this issue. This is what older Christians called polemics. Now, you might have heard of this phrase, apologetics. Do you know what apologetics is? Apologetics is where you defend the gospel against unbelievers. And maybe some of you have taken classes in that or read books about that or went to seminars about that. But there's also an important thing that Christians have done throughout the centuries, though not so much anymore, which is called polemics, which is defending the gospel against believers. And that may seem like a strange thing to do, but it's absolutely necessary. Galatians is about polemics. It's about defending the gospel against Christians who are perverting it. Which means all of us should examine our heart and our gospel. Have we perverted it? Have we reversed it? And one of the best ways to actually sort of test whether you get the gospel or not is does it give you courage? Look at what Paul says in verse 9 and 10. Where he says this, it's actually verse 10. He says, I'm trying to, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is not just a little tacked on thing here. The, the reason that he gets into this, the reason this connects to what I've been saying earlier tonight, is that one of the best tests for whether the gospel is sinking into your heart is, do you live for the approval of other people? Or are you content with the approval of God? See, the gospel is, if you're a Christian, you have the approval of God. You have this inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept in heaven where you can't screw it up. You can't lose the approval of God if you're a Christian. Because the approval of God is based upon what Jesus did. And he already finished the work. Okay, It can't be undone. But if that's not taking root in your soul... You've got to get approval somewhere. And what Paul is saying is, seeking the approval of men is incompatible with being rooted in the approval of God. 
What, what does that mean? How does that work itself out? I mean, Paul here, I mean, you read this and you go, verse 10, 11, I don't know, how many people here are people pleasers? Come on now. <laughs> I had a friend of mine one time, he was going to this counselor, and, and he was throwing around this phrase saying, yeah, I think I've got this problem with being a people pleaser. And, and the counselor, after a little while, said, you know, you throw that phrase around so easily, why don't, we, why don't we define it for what it really is? Why don't we put a more appropriate label on it? Would that be okay? My friend, foolishly, don't ever do this for a counselor, they just lead you down these trails. He said, yeah, that'd be fine. He said, why don't, why don't we say that you prostitute yourself to everybody around you? <laughs> but that's what we do. That's what we do. Um, a guy that, I, that I, I learned from who's passed away now used to talk about approval sucks. And I don't know if you've ever been on a farm and you've seen the, the mother pig and all those, all those little pigs trying to you know, suck on her teats. We're all approval sucks. We're trying, to, we're trying to suck approval from people in our lives. We are. And it's It's disgusting. It's disgusting, but more importantly tonight, it shows that the approval of God is not connecting with your heart. You don't think the approval of God is enough. Now, you look at Paul and you say, if you look at Paul as an example for what Christians should be like, I think you get pretty depressed. Because which of us could say, I am not trying to win the approval of men? None of us can really say that very very consistently, can we? But he says it. How can he say that? It's because the gospel has given him courage. How does the gospel give you courage? How does the gospel give him such freedom to not care what people think about him, even people that he loves? It's this. There is a confidence that comes from knowing that the security, the relationship you have with Jesus, you have with God, is not based on what you did. It can't go up or down depending on whether you're doing well or not doing well. The confidence that comes from that, knowing that it can't be screwed up, allows you to go out in the world and say, I don't need your approval. I have the approval of the Lord of the universe. It would be nice if you liked me, but I don't have to have it. I have to have the truth. And if holding on to the truth means you're not going to like me, it's, it's, it's no decision. There's no decision. I have to hold the truth. Don't you long for that kind of confidence? Don't you long for that kind of freedom? When you're tempted to, f- to seek after the approval of others and to feel like you need it for life, recognize that what you've done is you've reversed the gospel. What I've done is I've reversed the gospel I've said that it's not enough to have the grace and the favor of God. I also need the favor of men. I also need the favor of her or him or them or my peers or other musicians or whatever it is. You've reversed the gospel and therefore it's no gospel at all. And therefore, either you hate yourself because you're not doing the kinds of things that you feel like you should do to get God's blessing, or you hate God because you think you're doing all the right things and he's still not blessing you like you deserve. The gospel rescues us from all that kind of nonsense and manipulation. And then remember that what Jesus did and who Jesus is is the reason you're accepted. And bask in that and meditate on that until it begins to actually sense, you begin to sense it on your heart 
This is why worship is absolutely vital. And it's why it's vital that we remind ourselves of who God is and what he's done in worship. We don't just sing to him about what we want to do. We need to be reminded of what he's done because it's the only thing that changes our heart. You wondering if this Christianity thing really works? I know a lot of students come to Belmont. They're kind of sometimes on their last legs. They've been trying to live this Christian life and it's just frustrated them. They feel discouraged. They feel like they're not getting anywhere. They don't feel any joy. It may be, it may be that you've reversed the gospel. It may be. All the time, I'll close with this illustration. I, I, I have this experience so often, it's almost, it's almost funny, where I'll sit down with a student early in the semester, generally a freshman, who will be concerned because they're not reading their Bible anymore and they're not praying like they used to. And they'll say, you know, when I was home in my church, I had a youth group and I had a discipleship group leader and they would call me up every week and they would, you know, remind me about reading my gospel. I was accountable to this group of people and I would read my Bible and whatnot. And now I come here to college and I haven't been reading my Bible at all. And generally they're kind of looking down like this. And the question I always like to ask is, what does it mean to be a Christian anyway? Like, forget, forget that. Forget the problem you have. We'll get to that. But let's, let's back up a little bit. What does it mean to be a Christian? And almost every time I've asked that question, I get the same answer. I get looking down at the ground. Well, it means to try to read your Bible and to try to love God and try to witness. And they always put try to because they know that if they say it means to do all those things, then they can't possibly think of themselves as a Christian because they're not doing any of those things. So they say try to. And I say, you know, here's the tragedy. You're so caught up in trying to get God to love you by what you do, that you didn't even hear the question. Because I didn't ask what do Christians do. I asked what does it mean to be a Christian? What it means to be a Christian is to be one who has been fully accepted into God's embrace because of what Jesus did and lived and died in your place. It means to be, have given an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. But you're not thinking about any of that. All you're thinking about is the things you need to do. It's no wonder you don't want to read the Bible. The last thing you need is to read more stuff about what you need to do. It's no wonder you're not excited about going to church. You already know plenty of things that you're supposed to be doing that you're not doing. Why do you need to go to church and hear more? Right? You've reversed the gospel. You think that, that what it means to be a Christian is to do Christian things. And therefore, you don't feel like a very good Christian. <laughs> do you see? Does that make sense? If it doesn't make sense to you, I guarantee you it makes sense to some of your friends. So let's pray together for us and um, as we get into this book that we'll begin to taste more of the freedom that the gospel brings. Lord Jesus, we do thank you. We thank you for exposing all the ways that we reverse the gospel, so subtle, and yet we need to come back again and, and sit in this profound truth that the gospel can be reversed and thus become no gospel at all. Forgive us for doing that. Forgive us for the way it dishonors you. But Lord, Heal us and rescue us from this foolishness. Because, Lord, we need you to rescue us again and to, to, to restore to us the joy of your salvation, the joy that comes from knowing that you have done it. We thank you for that. We pray that we would believe that not just because we want to, but because it's what the Bible says. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.